Amen. <coughs> Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As we continue in this study through 1 Corinthians, we'll be wrapping up chapter 12 this morning, moving on into chapter 13 next week. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, Paul's been talking a lot about spiritual gifts. You remember the whole book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's emphasizing the unity of the body, how important it is that the body sticks together. Here in this 12th chapter, as he's been talking about the gifts, he, he demonstrates to us how each of us are unique and special, created individually to fit with others, to be a part of something much greater than ourselves. He uses the imagery of the physical body in order to make that point. How your body has a lot of different parts and each part has a purpose. And each part, when it's doing its job, performs best as it works in conjunction with all of the other parts of the body. So in the body of Christ, we discover that God has made each of us unique and also has made each of us so that we function at our best when we are cooperating with others, when we are functioning in conjunction with others. We're all made a, a part of something very special, the body of Christ. Now, a lot of times we can get confused between we are important because we're a part of something important, or we have significance in and of ourselves. And here in verse 27, Paul kind of touches on both of those as he says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. He says, yes, you find your highest purpose and your greatest significance as being a part of a, of a whole, a totality of something very significant, the representation of Jesus on this earth. And so it's great for you that you are a part of that. But he said, you're also each individually members. Another reminder that God doesn't make us just for what he can get out of us. He doesn't make us just so that we can fit. We just find our highest expression of who we are as we learn how we fit in with others. But he designed us as individuals. And he cares about each of us personally and individually. Again, not as many people do just look at the others as those who can fulfill a useful purpose. Yes, there is purposes and plans that he has for each of us, and yet ultimately he sees each of us as individuals and then puts us together and creates something much greater out of that. And so verse 27 is kind of a summary of all that he has been saying up to this point. You are a special individual valued by God, created by God, and you are someone who is designed to fit in with others and to be used in a team approach to do something much greater collectively than we could ever do individually. But now as he wraps up this discussion, he gives a list of members of the body that God has appointed. God has appointed these in the church. He said this earlier as well, that God's plan is a plan whereby he wants to use each of us as members of the body. But now he seems to list some of the gifts 
in priority, in their importance and usefulness within the church at a particular time. I'm not sure why he does this, um, because he's just been saying that, hey, whatever your gift is, just do your gift, and don't value one member as over another. Sometimes the most visible gifts are some of the least important gifts in terms of functionality. But now he's addressing the situation that existed as God began to build his church and was showing that each member had a crucial part in that, but he lists them in a way that shows how if one person doesn't do what they do, then it's impossible for the next person to do what they are going to do. Kind of a progression of priority within the gifts. And one backhanded thing that he is doing here is he's deliberately listing all these other gifts and then he lists the gift of tongues last. The reason he does that, and we'll see it when we get to chapter 14, a lot of their abuse, a lot of their weirdness had to do with the gift of tongues and their practice of it. They were fascinated by this by this ability to speak in a way that they couldn't understand. And it was an exciting gift that first showed up, in, in, in a sense, from the day of Pentecost, the gift of tongues was the first very visible gift that was used. And so perhaps because of that position of the gift, they had begin, begun to overemphasize it, and it was becoming what everything was about in Corinth. And so Paul not only corrects that in chapter 14, but here in the end of chapter 12, kind of in a backhanded sort of way, says it's like the least of the gifts that I'm listing, the least critical or important. It doesn't make it unimportant. It's just that in the way that God uses gifts, he lists it last for some reason. And I don't completely understand this whole prioritizing here, but as we go through it, it does make some sense, I think, and we'll try to make sense of it. Um, We've already gone through this list of gifts, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each of them, but let's look at how important they are because that's his, that's his emphasis here. He says, God has appointed these in the church. First, apostles. The word apostle means to be sent from. It's someone who is sent really kind of as someone else is the source of their sending, but they are sent out. Now, in the New Testament, the word apostle is used in, in a very specific sense and then sometimes in a more general sense. In a very specific sense, there were men who were given authority to start the church, to get things going. These were primarily the disciples that had walked with Jesus. Originally, there were 12 that stuck by him, more or less. One of them, Judas, bailed out at the end, obviously, and betrayed Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, they voted and, well, they cast lots, and Matthias was picked as the guy who would take Judas's place, so they would still have 12 apostles. There are disagreements as to whether really throwing dice to pick the next apostle was the best way to do it. And some people suggest that Paul was really the guy who should be the 12th 
apostle. At any rate, Paul also witnessed Jesus. He saw him when he was on the road to Damascus and was called as an apostle. And so Paul, by all rights, is second to none in terms of his apostolic position. What that meant, there was a certain authority as they were just beginning to put together the church of Jesus Christ. And apostles had, a, had an important position to play. But also, these were guys who God sent out to build and to plant churches in different areas around the world. That was Paul's primary role, was as someone who would go to a new place and preach the gospel, and as people got saved, would form them into a church. Once the church got going, he would tend to move on. He said, I didn't you know, build on another man's foundation. That foundational role that he had to play within the church. Now, in the New Testament, there are others who are called apostle. It would seem like in a less strictly technical sense, Barnabas and some others, as being those who were church planters, those who were missionaries. I believe that people who are called to missions today are, in a sense, fulfilling the role of apostleship. There are some people today who still use apostle with a capital A as being someone who has a lot of power, and they try to trace historically how their leaders are connected with the apostles, and that's really weak historically. We don't see the kind of power being exhibited, universal authority and leadership from these guys. So I just sort of discount that whole notion. And yet I believe that there are people today who are very important because they're called to go out and start new ministries, just to go where no one has been and to preach the gospel and to get things going. But you understand how critical this gift was in those days because someone, if, if this group of guys was supposed to change the world, somebody had to have an entrepreneurial spirit. Someone had to have the capacity to just head out and get things going. There are people today with those kinds of gifts, and, and it's still a blessing to the body, but probably not as critical as it was obviously in those foundational days. So he said, that's where God started it. Not with the people who spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost, but it was those guys going out and planting churches. That was really the most critical need in beginning a movement like the church of Jesus Christ. But he said, secondly, there were prophets. A prophet is someone, the, the word means to speak on behalf of someone else. And in a, there's a general sense in which anyone who speaks for God, it can be said to be a prophet. Later on, Paul defines prophecy, says it's one who speaks in edification and exhortation and comfort. But in a very technical sense, a prophet in those days was someone who, well, the people who wrote the scriptures, I mean, they were starting basically from scratch. All they had of the Bible was the Old Testament. Now, you could get up and talk about Jesus from the Old Testament. Jesus himself did that. But still, imagine trying to function as a church without a New Testament, without all of these, the stories and sayings of Jesus, 
without everything that Paul and John and Peter and the others wrote for us. I mean, when God breathed his word through these anointed, gifted men who brought the scriptures to us, what an amazing gift that was to the church. See, to this day, most of us got saved because of something that one of the prophets wrote down for us. What we know about Jesus, we know because of the words of prophecy that are in this book. And so in founding a church, after those apostles were sent out and got things going, then the people who would speak prophetically, and God's word was revealed through them, were vitally important. Not that this gift isn't still here today, not that it isn't still important today, but it had huge significance in those days before the the canon of Scripture was completed. There are still people today, though, and they're important, gifted people, who seem to have a way to speak as if they're speaking on behalf of God. They speak in a way that you feel like, I've never heard anyone else quite say it like that. Many prophets today are those who write good Christian books. Now, not everyone who writes a Christian book is a prophet, In fact, most Christian books are just garbage. I I usually suggest that when a book comes out, if you hear it's really good, give it a few years. If they're selling it for 39 cents on Amazon.com, maybe it wasn't so prophetic after all. Good books last. Good books will continue to be considered as good books after a long time because there are some people who are gifted to present the truth in a way that's really significant. Now, I believe that there are some individuals within the church, some individuals within the body of Christ, who have a powerful gift to speak out for God. I could name several people on the national front who I believe God has used them to speak prophetically, but I'm not going to name them, because sometimes when you name them, they go south, and then you go, okay, I guess maybe he wasn't such a prophet after all. So we'll leave that to your imagination and for God to show you. But, you know, there are certain people who it just seems like God has raised them up in a unique time to speak on behalf of a, of a generation. Now, here, he says, God raised up those prophets. And again, primarily those who wrote the scriptures which would be, of course, Paul himself wrote, I believe, 14 books of the New Testament. We know that he wrote at least 13. Book of Hebrews, people question whether Paul wrote it or not. I think Paul wrote Hebrews myself, which makes 14 books. I mainly think that because 13 is an unlucky number. 14 (laughs) is twice the perfect number, seven. So, But I have a few other reasons as well. (laughs) But John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Of course, Peter wrote his books, 1st and 2nd Peter. James and Jude wrote theirs. Matthew, Mark, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so God used these people to give us this book, a solid foundation whereby as the canon was completed, it could say, everything in here is all that you need for life and godliness. Obviously, an important gift in those days, especially strategically within the church. And then third, he says, God raised up teachers. 
those who would come alongside the prophets and the apostles, and, but they would continue to gain greater prominence and greater importance over the years because they could take that which God has spoken and then help you to understand it, explain it, consolidate it, organize it, and to get up and take God's word and apply it to our lives. An important gift back then. You know, it's one thing for someone to start a church and then to have the word of God, but then someone had to make it more practical. Someone had to say, look, this is what this means in your life. Here's how you work that out in this way. And so it was very important for teachers to be brought into the body by God to fulfill their roles. And then he says, after that, miracles. People who would do miracles, you'd think that would be one of the most important ones, but he put that down the road. There were some great miracles in the church in history, and God continues to do miracles periodically. But it certainly isn't the most prominent element or the most important element within the church. Why? Because miracles are so easy to fake. Nowadays, just about any miracle, you name it, you can go on YouTube and somebody will teach you how to do it. You can do some amazing things. And so miracles, even as back in the Egyptian days when Moses came and did miracles, the magi, the magicians, were able to get up and imitate most of those magic tricks. And, and that's why God doesn't primarily reveal himself through card tricks. Other people can do it just fine. And so, but there's a place for that. And boy, sometimes God had to come through miraculously, and sometimes he still does. And it is an important gift, just not necessarily foundational. And then gifts of healing. This is the first one that talks about a plurality of gifts, the gifts of healing, because God heals in different ways at different times. There are times when God just touches you and heals you. There are other times when you have a pain that isn't healed immediately by God touching you, but over a period of time, he works within your body and your mind and your spirit and brings that healing. Sometimes he'll bring someone to pray for you and you'll be healed immediately. Other times it's the presence of someone who really cares about you, who, who takes the time to be with you, who God uses them to bring healing into your life. Sometimes it's just coming to a a different church and hearing things freshly and you feel like, oh, that felt such, like such a healing thing or just hearing a particular teacher or whatever sometimes can be healing. Healing's important and God heals in a lot of different ways and continues to. But again, it's we could do without it. If, if there was no healing, we would just all get to heaven quicker. And there are times when I appreciate someone with a gift of healing but sometimes you get to a point where you just go, if you have a gift of healing, stay away from me. I have no people who have just, you know, it was, I was thinking of Juanita Deemer when she was, you know, 98 years old or something. And, and man, I, she she'd had a stroke and wasn't able to really communicate well. And I was there at her hospital bed holding her hands and just talking to her. And I started praying for her. And I said, Lord, if it's your will, if you, if it's your will to heal Juanita and to raise her back up. And she started waving her arms going, no, <laughs> don't do that. Because she knew it was her time to go. 
I'll be really bummed if when I finally get to the end and there I am and I'm, I'm just, I can almost see heaven opening and God saying, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And right as I'm reaching out to touch Jesus, I feel some greasy evangelist with his hand on my head <laughs> going, heal. And if it works, oh, I'm going to be so mad. There are times when God says, I'm not finished with you yet, and so I'm going to heal you and restore you back so that you can do what I've called you to do. It's an important gift, but when the gift goes away, the, the ultimate healing happens. You're in the presence of God, and that's certainly much better. He goes on enlisting some other gifts that are seen as lesser in some ways, the gift of helps. That is the gift just to chip in and do what's necessary, to support and help in small ways. We, we don't have a lot on this. This is the only place the word is used in the New Testament as a gift. But, but the gift of helps refers to anyone who just comes in and helps things to work, supports and gives and cooperates in different ways. Now, again, think about the starting of the church. You have the apostles laying this foundation. You have prophets coming forward, speaking great truths that challenge people, that, that have the capacity to really give direction and leading to a movement. Then you have teachers who come and kind of explain what it's all about. And as, as we teach, then you see God working miracles in people's lives and bringing forth his healing as he comforts and strengthens those who are beaten down. But then you need people who go, hey, somebody needs to change the light bulbs. Somebody needs to take care of some of the little details. Someone needs to feed the people who are hungry. Somebody needs to lock up afterwards. There are all these things that need to happen, and God gives those gifts of helps to plug in all the gaps that happen. As God begins to work, you don't notice it so much. But as God's work continues, you recognize more and more, we need a lot of people to chip in on this deal. We need everyone to get involved for, for God's church to really become what he wants it to be. And then also along with that is administrations. That is, people to come along and organize the mess. People who are able to motivate others and channel their energies and direct them. You know, every once in a while we have a church work day, and they're always fun. It's always great to get together with God's people and do stuff, and everyone comes with their tools and with their energy, and they're pumped up, and they're going to give a day to just, you know, get involved with the church. But it wouldn't work very well without gifts of helps. But the gifts of helps wouldn't work very well unless there was somebody there to organize all that, to channel that energy, and to say, here are the priorities of what we need to get done today. You, you, and you get busy on that task. You, you, and you work on this one. This is a gift that's important sometimes in our own lives as well, to organize what we are doing and give it focus and channel it. An important gift within the body, especially as a body matures, especially as it grows, as more people are coming and more people are turning to the Lord and wanting to get involved, 
you really need those people with gifts of administration to organize it. Now, when you're getting things started, that kind of a person isn't as necessary. In fact, they'll drive you crazy. If you're just trying to get something started and they're trying to get you to do it right and organize it and prioritize it. But there comes a point when that role is really important. And so Paul says, God gave those people to the body as well. And then mentions varieties of tongues last. Different ways of people being able to know languages and to able to communicate. Again, he used it in a huge way on the day of Pentecost. Later, as we get into chapter 14, we'll see some of the abuse of it and how the gift of tongues was really to be used in, in the established, more modern church. And so we'll have more to say on that when we get to it. But here he lists it and says it was a gift given by God, but it was given in a way that was of relative importance compared to some of these other gifts that were so foundational and would be so necessary in what God wanted to do within the church. Now, after talking about God appointing these in the church, then he asked the rhetorical questions, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? These are rhetorical questions with an obvious understood answer of no. He's saying everyone doesn't have all these gifts. Now, in the rest of the chapter, he's made a big point to say that each person has their own set of gifts that God has given, and it's why we need each other. He said, if the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? And one member of the body can't look at another member of the body and say, you're not important because you're not like me. And here again, he's saying, you guys are different. Don't suppose that you'll all have these gifts. And don't suggest that everyone else ought to have your gift. In fact, as we're trying to discover our niche within the body, often we dabble and experiment with different gifts. You know, and maybe you think, I have a gift of leadership, a gift of administration. And so you offer to organize something in the church. And it just falls apart. And you're, you figure, I'm doing a great job of leading. Trouble is, there's no one here with a gift of following. They just don't want to do what I'm saying to do. And you realize, wow, not everyone has that gift. There are many people who try to teach. And they think, I'm a good student, therefore, I ought to be a good teacher. But there are some people who, when they... Now, anytime you try a gift, sometimes you have to do it a while before you discover if it's really your gift or not. But it's important for us to understand, no, not everyone has to be a teacher. Not everyone has that gift to be able to communicate in that way. If you try it and it's not your thing, don't feel like, oh, shoot, I didn't get the great gift. I must have some crummier gift. I knew it. I knew I would just end up with just the gift of giving. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted something more glamorous. You know, and then the gift of giving, you have to do it anonymously, and that's a, you know, feels like a waste, <laughs> you know. But he's going, no, 
Each person is created individually with gifts. And I'm convinced that sometimes people try to serve God and they get all frustrated and they quit doing it. And the key is right here. They've tried to do something and to put God in a box as to how they want to serve him instead of accepting what is very often obvious about gifts that God has given us. And there isn't any lesser gift in terms of what's important for you. What you have to do is your gift. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble on this, but you know it wouldn't be me if I didn't get in trouble once a week. But there are people today who, and I praise God for people who are who God has led them to do homeschooling. And if God has called you to do it and gifted you to do it, uh, great for you. But stop trying to make everyone else feel like they aren't a good Christian unless they do it too. I hear people all the time who say, all my friends are just telling me that, uh, you know, if you love your kid, you'll homeschool them. And it's the only way to, no, it isn't. Teaching is a gift. Not everyone has that gift. Now, I have a gift of teaching, but I'll be honest with you, my kids, although I taught them a lot of things, my kids went to school and had some great teachers. They had some teachers that are better teachers than I am, especially for a particular subject or in a different way. And it's a gift from God. And you shouldn't feel guilty if you're not a teacher or if you're good at teaching some things and not others. Don't let anybody put the trip on you that says, you should feel guilty if you don't have this gift, no matter what that gift is. If you have a gift, use it. If what you're doing is frustrating and it's not clicking for you, you just have some other gift. You just have to reach out and branch out and experiment. Now, I don't want the homeschool moms picketing out here. You know, I just, but that's the truth from the scriptures. There isn't anything in there that says everyone is to be a teacher. No, it isn't. And a lot of kids are suffering with an inferior education, frankly, as a result. People who have gifts need to fulfill those gifts. At the same time, does that mean I never teach my kids anything? No. I may be, in one sense, the most important teacher that they have because I have the most time to set an example for them. But at the same time, I shouldn't feel responsible to do what I'm not gifted to do. I should be more than happy to let other people within the body utilize their gifts on behalf of my kids. And I hope that makes sense. Believe me, I'm somebody who puts a great value in education, certainly. And again, if you are a gifted teacher who's teaching your kids at home, I honor you for that. But, you know, if I'm a pastor, I'm not trying to tell everyone to be a pastor, I'm not, I'm not, and it's counterproductive to everything that the scripture teaches when we expect everyone to be alike. We're all different. And God didn't just make us from a mold to stamp us out. The body of Christ is the body of Christ because each one of us is unique and special. And, and so everyone doesn't have every gift. Don't try to have them. Don't believe you have them. And don't reject people who don't have your gift. Now, he goes on after making this point again to say, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. This is problematic. Why he would say, after everything that he said, this seems to run completely counter to what he is saying. 
despite the fact that I've said God's the one who gives gifts and he gives each person different gifts and he gives them in different measures to be practiced in different ways and you shouldn't look at somebody else's gift and want it and you shouldn't look at someone else and devalue them or look at yourself and devalue yourself because you don't have the right gifts. You have the right gifts. You are a gifted member of the body of Christ. Accept who you are and glory in the fact that you fit with the body of Christ, and then to turn around and say, but earnestly desire the best gifts. So does this mean he said God put in the body first apostles and then prophets and teachers and so on, so try to be an apostle? Oh, God, I want to be an apostle so bad. Is that what he's saying? Well, interpreting this verse is a bit problematic grammatically, and I'll explain that to you in a moment. But here's one thought. If this should be translated, but earnestly desire the best gifts, what are the best gifts? Did he just say that apostle was best and then prophet was a little better and teacher just you know, a little less and, and then getting down to tongues, which is a real gift for losers? Is, was that what he was saying? Certainly not. But he was showing that in establishing the church, you need certain gifts in certain places, certain times, certain ways. So what's the best gift? The best gift is the gift that you need right now. If I'm feeling really discouraged and depressed, you know, and my life, I feel like it's out of control and it's a mess, what gift do I need for God to bring along in the person of someone? I really don't need someone with the gift of teaching to come along and say, Dave, I can explain to you exactly why you feel the way you do. Here are the steps. Here's what you've done. In fact, I can tell you clearly how you messed up your own life. Let me explain it to you. No, you know, the best gift in that situation is someone with a gift of showing mercy. Somebody who just gives me a shoulder to cry on, who just says, hey, I'm here for you. And again, there are times when you need someone who offers a healing other times, you need someone who can just give you a word of wisdom. Other times, you need someone who can spur you on in that entrepreneurial way to, to step out in faith. Other times, someone who can explain things to you in a way that's helpful. The best gift is the gift that you have in the time that God gives you to use that gift. Your best gift is your gift in your situation in the church where God has placed you. However, there are a couple of other explanations of this verse, and I'm really not totally sure which one is completely right. They all have elements of truth. But grammatically, the sentence, but earnestly desire the best gifts, can be, that's stated in the indicative mood, which is to say, this is what it is. In the Greek, you also, you have an interrogative mood, which would be, uh, you know, are you desiring? You have the subjective mood, which is, which is let's do this together and desire this. But there's, this is translated in the imperative mood that's telling you to do it. But the indicative mood saying that you're doing it and the imperative mood are spelled the same way in the Greek. So this could be translated instead of, earnestly desire the greater gifts, the best gifts, this could just as accurately be translated, you are earnestly desiring the best gifts. 
Now, if it's to be translated in the indicative instead of in the, in the, um, you know, in the imperative, then Paul is saying one of two things. <laughs> there are still a couple of options here. First of all, you can't separate it from the next sentence, yet I show you a more excellent way, which is chapter 13, the chapter on love. But perhaps Paul is saying, look, I understand that you are wanting the best gifts. And that's okay. That's a good thing that that's what you're desiring. But what I am going to show you is way more important than that. Okay, go ahead and look for your gifts. Pray for your gifts, whatever. But I have something more important, and that is love. And so that's another way to take it. Now, a third way to take it is to put it in the in the indicative mood and to say, look, you are zealous for, you are earnestly desiring the best gifts, and that's contrary to the nature of the gifts. You're doing this, and it's wrong. You're doing this, and you shouldn't be. Now, my suspicion is that's what Paul is saying, and because it seems to flow best with the context of what he's saying, but also the word for earnestly desire there is a word that's usually a negative word that's translated lust or, or zeal. It's actually the word zealous in the Greek. Now, general, it can be used in a positive way, but it's generally used in a way that somebody's all worked up about something in a wrong way. Now, the reason why I suspect that Paul's using it in a negative sense is because in the immediate context, when you get down to verse 4 of chapter 13, Paul says, as he begins to describe love, he says, love suffers long and is kind. And then the second thing that he says about love, love does not envy. The word there is the same word, zealous. Love is not zealous. So because it's just four verses away, I'm thinking that what Paul is saying in verse 31 is, look, you guys are so worked up over your, you want the best gift for you. But I'm telling you something, that's not the way it works. These gifts are gifts that God has given you. And he has placed gifted people within the body. And you have the gifts that you have because God chose to give them to you. So while you're burning up all your energy fighting over gifts and wanting to have what you have that's best. He said, I have something way better for you than that. I have a plan that's just glorious compared to that. And that plan is the greatest gift of all, the gift of love. And now Paul, in the middle of a discussion on gifts, spends a whole chapter, and we'll start on it next week, looking into what he says about love. And his very first introduction is, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter how many gifts you have, it doesn't matter how great your gifts are, it doesn't matter how impressive and powerful they are, they mean nothing without love. And so the way I take verse 31 is Paul saying, look, you're burning up your energy worrying about you getting gifts. Why don't you look into something much more important than that? The gift that we all share, the gift that's the fruit of the Spirit, the gift of love, because gifts without love are nothing. Love will help you to discover your gifts and to use them more effectively. It's why it's the heart 
of the passage on the gifts. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these gifts of the Spirit. It's, it's encouraging to know, Lord, that each of us have special gifts, special abilities and capacities, power that you have put into our lives, roles that we can play within the body of Christ. That's all great. And it's been encouraging, Lord, in these last several weeks as we've all discovered, despite the way that other people may devalue us, despite the way that some of us might have even grown up being made to feel worthless, yet you, by placing us in your body, you affirm to us, no, you're, you're so valuable to me. You have an important role to play in the body of Christ. And Lord, we're grateful to learn that. And it's been good going through this passage to sort out some of these issues. But Lord, we're also really excited that chapter 13 comes next. The more excellent way. Something much more important than being gifted. Something much more valuable than being useful. It's to be loved and to love. That's the glue that holds the body of Christ together. And so Lord, I pray that you'll work this in our hearts. That you will prepare us to understand the lessons of love so that finally our gifts can be used in a helpful way, in an appropriate way. And we thank you for what you've taught us. We thank you for what you're going to be teaching us as we continue through this book. In Jesus' name, amen.